again Jesus spoke to them saying I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life I'm going to read that one more time and I want you to read this with me again Jesus spoke to them saying read this with me now church I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life let's pray Father, as we open up your word today, we, we are showing up with a, an immense amount of expectation because we know that we are holding in our hands the, the spoken, written, active, living, breathing, working words of God. And so, Father, we approach that appropriately knowing that you change lives, that you change hearts and minds. And Father, today we're asking that you work through your word. We declare that you are God. There is no one like you. There's nothing like you. You are sovereign. You are provident. You are supreme. We declare that your son Jesus is just that. He is God, but he is your son sent into this world to restore and to redeem. We we believe that you have left us the Holy Spirit who is God, who fills us, who indwells us. Helps us to understand your word, illuminate scripture. And we are your church. We gather to, to make much of Jesus Christ, to, to lift his name high through singing, through studying, through memorizing, through righteous living. Father, I pray that your, your spirit, your presence would be with us now here. Pray that we will leave change, not the same that we entered into today. These are the expectations with which we come. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. We ask all these things. We all said, amen. Good morning, church. How we doing today? Doing well? Man, after worship like that, we're just ho-hum. How we doing today? Doing well, yes? You're looking good, looking really good. i got to be honest with you now. I'm just going to put out some expectations for you. Uh, our, our first service, 9.30, was, was, how do the kids say it? Lit. It was off. It was off the chain. It was amazing today. It was amazing. So uh, I think it's really, it really is the text. Uh, but man, it was, it was an unbelievable service. And we had a, a number of people make decisions to follow after Christ. And uh, man, I just love what God is doing. By the way, we got a, a bunch of people watching in. Uh, joining us for church online. I wonder, could we just welcome them this morning? Make them feel welcome. I, I know, I know there's, been, there's been some massive debate in, in church circles. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. You're probably not a church nerd like I am, but a lot of debate like, man, should, should people be having church online? What the, here, here's kind of our stance on it. We are excited to talk about Jesus anytime, anywhere, to anyone who will listen, Okay. And so if you're joining us online, we're so glad you're here with us. And, uh, man, we're going to jump right in. So here's what you got to know. A couple things. Number one, I need you to help me preach today. If you're in for doing that, just say, I'm in. I'm in. Okay, uh, we'll see. I, I appreciate that. I need you to be with me. I want you to be engaged. I want you to take notes. We take these notes and we, uh, we take them to our small groups and we open them up and and we discuss these, these, these theological points and learn more about Jesus. And that's where we grow in relationship to one another 
and, and build our relationship to Christ. And today, to be honest with you, I, I don't have enough time. There's so much here in chapter 8. Um, but if you're ready, let me hear you say, let's go. All right, here we go. Let's give some context. I'm not going to stop. Just write this stuff down as fast as you can, and uh, we got some major work. Let's give some context. We're coming out of chapter 7. In chapter 7, we see that, that Jesus and his buddies, Jesus and the disciples, along with a million-plus Jews, they're celebrating what's classically called the Sukkot. Uh, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. This was a million-plus people gathering together, building these little tents, these booths, where they get together and they celebrate the faithfulness of God in the wilderness. So just as Moses and the children of Israel led out of Egypt, they had to live in the wilderness, live in the desert. Um, this is a way for them to remember, right? And so they're physically doing something. They're not just teaching, but how many of you know as parents, more is caught than taught, amen? And so it's one thing to say something, it's another thing to physically do something. And so the physical action of remembrance is very important to the Jewish community. And so they build these little, these little, these little structures where they camp out with their families all week to remember God's faithfulness in, in the literal wilderness. And we come to the end of that passage, and, and the, the entire uh, celebration is capped off with with this, this, this high priest, he comes out and he, he grabs a goblet of water and he pours it over this altar where an animal had been sacrificed and he pours it over that and this, this stone, this big rock where the animal is, is, uh, is killed. And this water is symbolic of the fact that God will one day pour out his spirit on the nations. So catch this. He does this, very symbolic. Everybody's excited. Everybody stands up and cheers and shouts. And then all of a sudden... Jesus stands up and says, hey, that's me. That water that you're pouring out, that's, represent, that's representing me. In fact, if you drink of me, not only will you never be thirsty again, but out of you will come rivers of life. So understandably, people start to hate Jesus. <laughs> Mainly the religious elite, the people who have been in control, the people who think they know what's going on, got the people under the thumb. Now, oddly enough, the common man, they begin to love Jesus. Why? Because now God is becoming accessible to all people. Not just to the people who have their ducks in a row. Not just to the people with cash. Not just to the people with ruling authority. But equally available to everyone, and we see Jesus mixing it up with the commoners. We see Jesus walking up to lepers. We see Jesus walking up to the elite. Jesus is rubbing shoulders with everybody, and he's beginning to declare himself the Messiah. Then we jumped right into chapter 8, and we see Jesus walking back in the ninth day. Festival ends at day 8, and so they're tearing everything down. They're putting everything away. Jesus walks in, and, he, and he's brought a woman who was caught in adultery. We won't camp out here. We spent last week talking about this. But it's a setup. Remember that? The, the Pharisees, the scribes, are trying to set up Jesus. They said, hey, we've caught this woman in adultery. Now, the law, according to Moses, states that we can execute her right now. What do you say, Jesus? And here's where they're trying to trap Jesus. Number one, they know that, well, the law does say that. This woman is guilty. She could be stoned. They have the ability through the law, legal, well, legally, according to their law, to stone her. However, there is a problem. Rome, at that time, had not sanctioned the Jewish community to actually carry out any type of capital punishment without their approval. 
So here's where they thought they had caught Jesus and trapped him, if you will. On one hand, Jesus says, no, don't kill this woman. He's going against the law. If he says, go ahead and kill this woman, he's going against Roman law. They think they got him trapped. So what does Jesus do? Classic Jesus move, the genius of Jesus. He kneels down and he takes his finger and he begins to write into the sand. Now, we don't know exactly what he wrote. We really don't. But theologians pretty much universally agree that what Jesus was writing were the sins of the accusers. The sins of those who were accusing this woman. Jesus sat down, knelt down rather, and started writing their sins. And because we see one by one, starting from the oldest, probably because they got a lot more sin in their life, right? Because they're older. They've just had a little bit more time. And uh, begins writing their sins. And they drop their rocks and they leave. And then we get to this amazing and beautiful point where there's no one around except Jesus and this woman. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? And the woman looks around and she says, there's there's no one here, Lord. No one's accusing me, Lord. And what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What an amazing, beautiful picture of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And Jesus deals so gently with this, with this woman. Now, here's a question that we have to ask because we've got to set the, the contextual landscape, as it were, okay? What gave Jesus the ability to use the words, no condemnation? What was it that Jesus knew? In other words, why is Jesus speaking authoritatively about the forgiveness of sins? Well, number one, you have to understand that Jesus is God, okay? If you're writing down notes, we're a church that worships in spirit and in truth. Write this truth down. This is going to serve you well. Jesus is God. Jesus is not like God. Jesus is not a form of God. No, Jesus is God. And this God interacts in a personal way with man by sending himself through Jesus, by Jesus, in the form of man. We call this the incarnation. The incarnation is a theological term that helps us to understand that God put on flesh and bone. In fact, turn to your neighbor right now and just say incarnation. Big word, important word. Another word that's almost just as important as incarnation is is this word, hypostatic union. I know those are big phrases, but they're important phrases. The incarnation informs us that God put on flesh and bone, walked among us, breathed among us, ate food, was sleepy, was tired, was all those things. The hypostatic union is a term that helps us understand that Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. At no point in Jesus' life did he give up being some of God or give up being some of human. He was fully God, fully man, at all time, from the word go to the, to the word by, Jesus was God and Jesus was man. We call him the God-man. That sounds a little strange, I know. The God-man, the hypostatic union. And so because of that, Jesus, catch this now, is the Alpha and the Omega. The Greek words, the first and the last word of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. And so when Jesus says here, neither do I, full circle, you guys still with me, yes? When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he's referencing something that is yet to come. 
but it's a place he's already been, and that's the cross. Jesus knew his mission from the beginning. His mission was to redeem and to restore all things. In fact, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The author, Paul, writes it this way. This is a letter that Paul was writing to a church that he planted in Corinth. And Paul says it like this. For our sins, he made him. First off, let's clarify the he and the hymns. Pronouns seem to be a big deal these days, so let's clarify these. For our sake, he. Who is the he? The he is God. Who is the him? The him is Christ. So let's read it as such. For our sake, God made Christ to, catch us now, be sin. Who knew no sin? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8, uh, verse 1. It says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul in Romans 8 and Paul in Corinthians 5 is referencing this very important fact. And it's this big word that we have to understand. Because keep in mind, last week we asked the question, what, uh, or rather how, does God harmonize justice and mercy? In other words, why didn't Jesus tell this adulterous woman, you're guilty, you're wrong, here's the penalty? Because that would have been just. I mean, would you agree with that? Yes. That would have been justice, correct? Yes. And yet he's extremely merciful. He just says, go. What gives the ability to Jesus to be merciful without compromising justice? I mean, because here's the thing. If God is just, then justice must be executed, correct? Like, some people see God as either being just or merciful, but he can't be both. But what you have to understand, and what we discovered last week, was that what harmonizes justice and mercy is Jesus. Jesus is the harmonization for the justice and mercy of God. And I want to show you how, because this is, this is amazing. 2 Corinthians 5, look at this one more time. It says this, we're going to throw it right up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake... God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, I, wanna, I want you to understand this. At the cross, the justice of God was, was fulfilled. Was fulfilled completely at the cross. Well, what happened at the cross? Yes, we know that Jesus died for our sins. Amen? But do we really fully understand what took place in that moment? And there's this big word that I want you to write down. We've already hit two words so far. Here's the third. It said incarnation, hypostatic union. And here's the third word. We've referenced it before, but I want to speak about it in a little bit more detail as it pertains to John 8 for us today. Here's the word. Imputation. Imputation. Now, what does it mean? Uh, what does imputation mean? Or what does it mean to impute? To impute something means that... Uh, it is credited to me as if it is mine, even though it truly is not. Okay? And so what we have to understand, the transactional imputation that took place on the cross was that on the cross, our sin was put onto Christ and it was counted as his, even though it was ours. 
I'm just going to say this again because on a Sunday morning, that should get, a, should get a loud amen from a Baptist church. Our sin was placed onto Christ, and it was counted as his, even though it was ours. That is the beauty of the gospel. But that in and of itself is not enough for you to have a relationship with God. There's a transaction that must take place, not only from us to Christ, but equally from Christ to us. Because here's what happens. Our sin is imputed or credited towards Christ, and his righteousness is imputed and credited to us. That is incredibly beautiful. Because Jesus took what we deserved. He willingly received what we deserve, which is death. And we got, in exchange, what he deserved, which is righteousness. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was perfect. When God looks at you, do you know, if you are a follower of Christ... John 1.12 says that you are, you are, a new, you are born again. You're, you're a child of God, right? When God looks at you, can I ask you, what does he see? For many of us, we might get various answers. And I want you to know, there is only one answer. He sees his son. He sees his daughter. He sees the blood covering you. He sees perfection. How many of us spend our lives carrying around guilt, shame over what we've done only to realize that the beauty of the imputation means when God looks at us, he doesn't see sin. He sees perfection. You say, well, how can that be? It's because the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us even though we are not righteous. Can I get an amen on that? How many of, am I, I mean, I mean, maybe I'm speaking to a righteous crowd. I don't know. Are you righteous? I can tell you this. There is nothing righteous about me apart from the imputed righteousness of Jesus' blood that covers me. You, it's like when you go and you, you, you see a car that you want to purchase, but it's at somebody's house. You know what I'm talking about? And it looks really good on Marketplace. But then you pull up the hood and you realize there's no engine inside of it. That's how it is with imputed righteousness to a degree. Like, when God looks at us, he sees the beauty. But inside the car, I'm like, God, there ain't too much here. There's sin. I wrestle. I struggle. And my sin is given and counted to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He puts it to death. Why? Because justice had to be done. Someone had to die. Now, this goes pretty hard, pretty fast. Someone had to die for your sin. Someone had to die for mine. And the only death, the only blood that could cover the multitude of sins eternally was the perfect blood of Jesus. This is why it was so important for Jesus to live a perfect life. If there was sin, his blood wouldn't have been sufficient. But as it stands, Jesus was perfect. And he who knew no sin became, in other words, he willingly imputed our sin onto him, which is what gives him the ability to look at this adulterous woman who is fully guilty, caught in the middle of it all, and say, I don't condemn you. He treats her gently, and that's how he harmonizes it. Well, suffice it to say, in verse 12, Jesus goes on his little make the... Uh, 
establishment angry tour. And he says this, look at this. He says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, on the surface, this doesn't really look like a big deal. Sure, it's a big claim, but there's so much more happening. See, I want you to think back to Christmas. How many of you are like, I'm a Christmas freak? Anybody like a Christmas freak? Like you live for Christmas. You've already purchased, currently right now on the month of June, you have already purchased Christmas gifts. Anybody in here? Anybody? Yes, exactly. You're, you're weird. I just want to let you know. I don't know if people, I don't know if you realize that. You're a strange person. We love you and accept you. But here's how the rest of us work. We're happy about Christmas Eve. Christmas Day is beautiful. We tear open our presents. But the day after Christmas, get that tree and Santa Claus out of my house. Take the lights down. Do not be playing jingle bells. I got 364 more days of rest, right? Now understand, we're tearing everything down, we're pulling it all down. This is the case with the Festival of Booths. Beautiful eight days, they've adorned the city. In fact, right above the treasury, it's called the Court of Women, they put up these giant oil lamps, 65, 70 gallons of oil, and they light them on the first day of this event, of this feast, and they light up the entire city, extremely bright. That's on the first day. On the ninth day, uh, current with their tradition, they begin to pull all these things down. And where do they pull them down? In the treasury, in the court of women. Fascinating. In verse 12, in reading through, we find Jesus where? In the treasury, in the court of women. And he makes this statement in verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. The day before, the high priest pours out water and Jesus says, I am the water. I am the water. You'll never thirst again, you drink from me. Earlier in the book, he says, I am the bread of life. You eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. They're tearing down these lights, which were a representation of God's tangible faithfulness and of being a pillar of fire to the Israelites as they're wandering through the wilderness. And Jesus, as they're tearing down the lights, much like we're tearing down our Christmas stuff on, you know, the day after Christmas, he looks at those and stands up and says, hey, that's me. You see those lights? That's representing me. I am the light of the world. And if you want life, you come through me. Now, understandably, people get upset with this. And in verse 13, the Pharisees said to him, let's get to work here. This is good. He, they said this to him. You are bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. Your testimony is not true. I love it. Jesus answered them. And Jesus, you've got to understand, Jesus is beginning to build a real back and forth with these Pharisees, and every time he interacts, he's going a little bit harder, a little bit deeper. Look at what he says. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Okay, you may not realize, we may not realize that on the first uh, glance, but here's in essence what Jesus said. Uh, I don't care what you say. That's what he just said. You don't have to believe me. I really, I don't care. I don't need your validation. I don't need it whatsoever. <laughs> he goes on here. He says, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. 
What he's referencing here is the fact that according to Jewish law, not biblical law, but Jewish law, if you were to make an authoritative statement about scripture, about yourself, about God, and it was considered an authoritative script, uh, authoritative uh, claim that would be recognized by the community, you had to have the validation of at least two, potentially, hopefully, three witnesses. And so when they come to Jesus and Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, that, those lights, they represent me. I am the one that you are celebrating. I am the faithfulness of God made tangible to you. They said, nah, not true. You don't have any witnesses. No validity here. That won't hold up in a court of law. And Jesus says, I, it does, and I'm going to show you how. Now, on the opposite side of that, you want to hear something fascinating? This is fascinating. Jesus was validated as a speaker of authority. Now, the Pharisees weren't aware of this at the time, but the common folk were. Now, there's this crazy guy in Scripture called John the Baptist. Anybody know John the Baptist? John the Baptist is a wild man. He is a rabbi who lives out in the desert. He wears camel skin. He eats bugs. He comes in. He's baptizing people. He's, he's wild. But the entire, even the establishment, recognized him as a, a rabbi who spoke with authority from God. So although John the Baptist was a wild man, everyone respected his teachings and his prophetic ability as it, as it, as it, as it pertained to God. And he said, I'm, they came to him, they're like, are you the Messiah? He's like, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm the, the precursor to the Messiah. Jesus shows up. You guys still with me? Yes. Jesus shows up and John sees him. And what does John say in John chapter 1, Matthew chapter 3, parallel scripture? He looks and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who has come into the world, who has come to save the world. That is a validation from an, a rabbi who is accredited with being valid on his authority. Validation number one. You guys hear me so far? Yeah? Where else? Where else is Jesus validated as being one who speaks with authority? Well, how about the actual interaction of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus? Jesus goes to John and says, you got to baptize me. And John kind of freaks out. He's like, how am I going to baptize God? You want me to baptize you? You baptize me. And Jesus says, no, you're going to baptize me. John takes him under the water and brings him up. And it says, John's testimony. It says, the skies open up in Matthew chapter 3. And it says, a voice from heaven said, in verse 17, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Let me ask you, whose voice was that? That's the voice of God. Who more could you get better credibility from than God? How do you know you are speaking with God's authority? Well, you have a couple people who are already validated, or you have God actually say, this dude's credible. And if that weren't enough, John says, a dove ascended, like the spirit of God ascended down on Jesus like a dove. And said, There are three witnesses validating the authority with which Jesus speaks. The Jews had a word for this, it's shmicha. Kind of fun to say, we've talked about it before, but it means divine authority. It means true authority. In fact, it really at its, at, its, at its root, it means pure authority. In fact, a rabbi who spoke with shmicha, I'm going to stop saying that now, but a rabbi was who spoke with authority, okay, 
which were few and far between, they would correct other rabbis. And they would do it this way. This is going to blow your mind. They would say, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. What are they doing in that moment? They're saying, you've heard an uh, interpretation of Scripture that is this, but I'm actually telling you the real interpretation of Scripture is this. Who classically walks around saying all the time, you've heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus is demonstrating over and over and over and over the fact that he has true authority. And then look at this in verse 19. Verse 19. They said to him, therefore, well, where's your father? Because he speaks about his father. And you've got to understand, to a Jewish community, they don't, they don't reference God as their father. That would be too intimate. They reference him as God. Yahweh. They don't talk about him as his father. Well, now all of a sudden, here comes this, this Messiah who is referencing the relationship with God as one of his father. And so they say, well, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. You see just Jesus just throwing haymakers one after the other? You don't know me. You don't know my father. If you knew me, then you'd know my, know my father. These words he spoke in the treasury, as we said, as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said to them this. <laughs> Look at what Jesus says. Just watch this. Look at what he says. This is crazy. I'm going away. You're going to seek me. And you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Where's he going? Heaven. Why can they not come? They haven't recognized him as God. They haven't recognized him as the Messiah. They get super confused. They don't even know what he's saying. Look, they say, so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Let's explain that real fast. This is just super fast. The ancient Jews believed that if somebody took their life, there was a separate space in Sheol in the grave for them. Completely different. And so they thought Jesus was saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. Because they thought he was going to take his life. Kind of a weird understanding of what he was saying. And Jesus said to them, you're from below, I'm from above, you're of this world, I'm not. I told you that you'd die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you see the massiveness of what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is demonstrating to them a couple things. I'm going to cap this off in just a second because it's so, it's so powerful. Jesus is demonstrating something here. There is a system in this world that is different than the system God exists in. There's a system or structure of this world. There's a brokenness. You could use the word decay. There is a decaying, rotting nature, a system of sin that this world operates in. We live in it. Can I get an amen? If anything, has this last year, the last 14 months, not demonstrated that we live in a broken system? Yes. And so we think inside, from inside of that broken system. We live inside. I lost my grandfather this time last year. Why did that happen? Because it's a system of death. And it's a cycle that we cannot escape. Unless... There's another system that provides a door to get out so that we can access that system. Jesus is the bridge to that alternate system. And so while we, you guys still with me so far? 
So while we still live and struggle and wrestle and are controlled to a degree by our flesh and the system of the world, Jesus, outside of that system, comes into this system, straddles both systems, says, you're from here, I'm from there. Unless you allow me to take you from there, here to there, you're going to die here and stay here. And they just didn't get that. You're going to die in your sins. He looks them dead in the eyes and says, you don't know my father. You don't know me, and because of that, I'm going someplace you'll never be, the other system. That's heaven, the new Jerusalem. You can't get there. Why? Because you're not believing in me. If you'd known me, you would know God. If you knew God, you would know me. You don't know me or God, demonstrating you don't know anything at all. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, this is interesting in verse 24 because there's a breakdown grammatically here that we oftentimes miss. If you look in your Bibles, if you had your physical Bibles, I know you're an endangered species if you bring a physical Bible to church these days, but if you have one, if you look at that word in verse 24, it's probably gonna be in italics or it's gonna be in parentheses, the word he. Do you see that? Anybody see that? It says, I would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, in parentheses or italics, he, you will die in your sins. This is so cool. The early uh, interpreters of scripture, they're trying to interpret the language into English, right? They added the word he for continuity. Now that might not seem like a big deal, but as you can see, there's parentheses around this word. Jesus speaking, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, and, and I am what? I am he, you will die. But in adding this word to grammatically help continuity, we miss out on what Jesus was actually saying here. Jesus literally said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am. Well, what's that word? In Greek, it's ego, emi. I am. And oddly enough, ego, emi, is the same verbiage, the same vernacular that God used when Moses said, who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? And God tells Moses, tell him I am sent you. Jesus in this moment is saying, unless you believe I am, unless you believe that God is right here, right now, unless you believe that the same God who created the universe, the same God you celebrate, and the same God you, you celebrate the faithfulness through the feast, unless you believe that he is I and I am him, you will die in your sins. What an amazing thing to say. What an amazingly strong thing to say. Church, the imputation allows us access to the I am. Apart from Jesus, I am doomed. Apart from Jesus, I am sin. I am hopeless. I am broken. I am defeated. Because my I am, what I am, 
can't be anything good, can't be anything saving. And so the perfect God of the universe comes in and offers his I am and allows his I am to become my I am. So it's not that I'm truly righteousness, but I am righteousness because the I am said I am. It's not that I'm really good, but it's that I'm credited as being good because the great I am says you are good. Do you see how justice and mercy are totally fulfilled because of the cross? Do you see how we are woefully inept to save ourselves apart from the I am? Because he is, I am. Only because he is, I am. What am I? I'm righteous. I'm loved. I am saved. I am good. I am chosen. I am called. And for some of you this morning, this hits two ways. For the first group of us, those who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, you need to let go of the guilt, shame, and pain that the sin that you have done has has created in your life. You're still carrying it. Let it go. It is not yours any longer. When we get a healthy understanding of the forgiveness of sin, the sin that Christ gives to us, do you know what sin he forgives? All sin. Listen, 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 listen. Jesus forgave all sin. That means all the sin I did, all the sin I'm wrestling with, and the beauty of it is all the sin that is to come. It's all forgiven. It's all gone. You think you need to pay for it. What are you going to pay? What are you going to do? A broken life and a broken system that can't do anything but generate evil? No, we can't pay anything. That's why it doesn't cost something. Like money-wise, you couldn't pay for it. Even if you wanted. Even if you worked at it. You couldn't. God had to make it free. It's a grace. By grace you are saved. Even the faith you had to accept the grace was faith that God gave to you. Here's some faith to accept what you don't deserve. See, I think in some ways, I mean, this is me being just super honest with you. I'm just a very arrogant person. Maybe you find yourself in the same way. I think that I can pay for what God gave, and I can't. I can't. And so what's left? It's just a surrender. I'm saying, God, without you, I can do no things. (laughs) Apart from your working grace in my life, apart from you calling me out of darkness, apart from you raising me from the dead, apart from you giving me the faith to accept the grace to believe in you, I can do nothing. I can do nothing. But with you, I am righteous. With you, I'm an overcomer. With you, I am saved. With you, I am new. With you, I am good. And it's a declaration that he makes. So the first group of us, I just want to encourage you, you've been spending your whole life 
carrying the guilt and burden or trying to pay off the debt of sin. But when God looks at you, he sees no debt. Justice was satisfied when Christ took your sin to the grave. When your sin was imputed to him and he took it to the grave, it is no longer. You are, you are carrying things that no longer exist. You are allowing things that do not exist to continue to hurt your life. Let it go. Let it go. Jesus made the payment. There's no payment left for you to make. If you bought a vehicle, you'd look forward to the day that it was paid off. You wouldn't spend a lot of the rest of your life paying for that car when you don't owe anything, on any, owe anything else on it, would you? Jesus paid your debt. All that's left is to, sur- is to surrender. Group number one. Group number two. For those of us who don't know Jesus, you got to understand. Like, I, I get it. You're like, well, i got to get right before I come to Christ. No, you don't. Well, I'm wrestling with this. I'm wrestling with this. I mean, you don't even know. I mean, do I need to go through the list of things? You don't think God knows? You don't think he knows what you're wrestling with in your personal life? The things you're looking at behind closed doors in the dark? The things you're doing with that girl, the things you're saying about that guy, the money that you took, the things you, the life. You don't think God knows that? He does. And he doesn't say, hey, get that right and then come to me. He says, come to me. Just come to me. While you were yet a sinner, I died for you. So what do I do then? Come to Jesus. What if, what if I don't really mean it enough? What if I, listen, I remember being 13 years old and praying, being like, man, I really hope I meant, when I asked Jesus in my heart that I meant it enough, that I really, like, meant it enough. I prayed over and over, Jesus, please save me. Please forgive me. I hope I meant it enough. Listen, don't be so arrogant like me to think that your salvation has that much to do with you. It has a lot less to do with you and a lot more to do with Jesus. He gives you the faith to believe. But my friend, you've got to take that step. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on his name. Credit his righteousness to your life. Offload your sins to him. He's already made the payment. You just acknowledge that he's done it. And you, my friend, will be saved. I'm going to give you that opportunity right now. Bow your heads, close your eyes. If you're watching us online, I'm going to invite you to do the same. There is now there, there is now, therefore, no more condemnation for you if you are in Christ. I don't care what your mom has told you, what your dad has said about you, your wife who left you, your husband who said this, your kid. I don't, I don't care. I, I don't want any of that to affect your identity. Your identity is about to be made brand new in Jesus Christ. He's about to resurrect you. Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. I believe that you are the only way to God. If you're willing to take those steps, I know it's faith. Would you pray with me? Whether you're here, whether you're at home, pray with me today. Just your heart to God. I believe that Jesus is Lord. 
believe that he died for me. I believe that he rose from the grave. I surrender myself to you. And I ask that you save me. Save me. Forgive me. I want to be your child. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Fill me with your spirit. Create a home in heaven. Get me out of this broken system. My life is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Whether you're here at home on your couch, just shh. My friends, you've just taken the first step into a lasting, meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and, and I want to encourage you. Listen, I'm going to count to three. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to shoot up your hand. Nobody's going to come attack you. I'm not going to come down to you, nothing. But I want you to solidify this moment and take a bold step. When I count to three, you prayed that prayer. You took that step of faith. Come on now. I need you to beat that embarrassment. I know you're sitting next to your spouse. You feel embarrassed. count to three, I want you to raise your hand. You prayed that prayer. Are you ready? Come on. One, two. This is your moment right now. Come on. Three. Right now. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, buddy. Yes, sir. Yes. Praise God. I see you guys. Put your hands down. Church, can we just stand for a moment together? Grab the hand of the person next to you, if that's okay. And we just want to give proper celebration to our God. Father, we unite today as a church, and we thank you for your movement here. Thank you for seeking and saving the lost. Thank you for meeting us where we are. Thank you for taking our sin, for giving us righteousness. We are saved because of you. Worship. Can we just celebrate that this morning? People come to Jesus. Come on. Amen. Amen. Hey, we love you. We'll see you guys next week.